So this week we're going to be sending a check from the church to Hope for the Children of Haiti in the amount of $50,000. Praise God. So Hope for the Children of Haiti, longtime uh, mission partner of our church, they uh, were displaced from their property because of gang uh, violence and threats against them, and they had to move into temporary housing. They're looking for new permanent housing. They're in a really bad place. And uh, so they, this gift will allow them to, uh, you know, help sustain their ministry in the, in the meantime. This is a Massachusetts-based ministry. Their board is based in Massachusetts, and we've, again, we've had a long-term relationship with them. We'll probably have somebody from HFC come and speak to us in the near future, learn a little bit more about uh, how they're doing in this time of transition. But thank you for your generosity. We don't, we don't uh, celebrate this to be so proud of ourselves, but we celebrate the fact that God has blessed us that we can be a blessing to others and be able to make a big gift like this. I mean, 50, oh, it's actually $50,013. So every penny of that. So every penny's going to them, and, and that just, that's, everybody just gave so generously. So praise God for that. So just wanted to mention that. The other thing, uh, thinking over Christmas time, things that happen to me, in addition to, to being a little bit sick over, uh, the, over Christmas, my, my uh, truck died. My, my 21-year-old Chevy um, was a faithful truck. The truck served me well. I think the truck served Jesus well in many ways in, in terms of ministries and hauling things around. And um, there's no, I don't believe that there's a place in heaven for vehicles and possessions and things like that. But if there were, this, my Chevy would be there. Um, my mechanic refused to uh, lift it on the lift because he thought it would break in half. It was completely rotten and it had to go. So we, um, over the last uh, number of weeks, we went and bought a used car, but a much newer used car. Now, apparently over the last 21 years, the technology in cars has changed quite a bit. I didn't realize this. So my truck had crank windows, which is funny. The guy at the dealership, he's like, oh, I've seen that before. I'm like, the truck, he was probably at the same age as the truck. So it had crank windows. It had um, the manual door lock. So I had to kind of reach across the, the seat to lock or unlock. And so uh, technology has come a long way. Uh, so this vehicle we have is all this new technology. It has this thing called lane assist. Are you familiar with this? This is like magic. This is like, woo, what's going on? So you're driving down the highway. And it, uh, if you get too far to one side of your lane, it gives you a little nudge back into the center of your lane. You know, magically, you know, and I, I am an excellent driver. Like, dead center of the lane every time, you know, I'm very uh, considerate and defensive when I drive, but uh, apparently the vehicle's not satisfied with how centered I was in the lane. But I was thinking about this technology. What a great, it's a, it's a great analogy for what we're going to talk about uh, as we look at these letters to the churches that Jesus gave to these uh, early churches, these uh, churches in Asia Minor. And basically, you could be running a nice straight course and think you're doing great, but along the way of our journey of faith uh, as individuals and as groups of, of Christians, as churches, we sometimes need a little reminder that we're kind of get you're, you're starting to sway a little bit. You're starting to get off your lane, and you need a little, little bump to help remind you to get back. So, um, so again, as, as a recap, we're studying through the book of Revelation. We're here on chapter 2 today. And 
what, what this is, is it's a message to a, a specific group of churches, of these seven churches. But we know that it's a, it's a message far beyond that. Even in our text that was just read for us, it says, anyone who has ears to hear, hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. Like we can all listen into these messages to these various churches because God's church throughout every generation needs these same words just as they needed it in their day so that they could endure uh, what they were facing. They were, it was a time of intense persecution and trials, much worse than anything that you or I might face uh, perhaps in our journey. But we can really learn from their experience and how Jesus uh, was specifically giving them visions and uh, giving them messages that really helped them endure. So in chapter 1 of Revelation, John has this spectacular vision of Jesus, who he is, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the one who was and is and is to come. And it's spectacular uh, image of Jesus with the white hair and the blazing eyes and the swords proceeding from his mouth, his feet of bronze. It's just spectacular imagery of Jesus in his power. And it, again, this, this image of Christ really did help sustain these people. So now we get to chapter 2. We have these in chapter 3, specific letters. John, you know, write, write this to the church in Ephesus. Write this to the church in Laodicea. Write this to the church in Smyrna. Specific messages to specific churches. And in one way or another, I think what they were dealing with, we may not deal with it in such an extreme way as they did, but they're common things that could get us out of our lane, that could push us um, off of this track of following Jesus and obeying him in his way. And so we're going to look at these. These are, in some ways, warnings for these people, but it's a warning for us as well. And so we're going to try to get through, actually, four, the first four of these letters, which is all of chapter 2, and we'll see if I can do that. Um, let us pray as we turn to God's Word together. So, Father, this is your Word. I pray that as we look at your revelation to John and to these churches, we pray that you would reveal to us, to each of us, what you want us to see during this time. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. So we pray that you would use it as a tool on our hearts today, however you desire, Lord. May we receive it. Uh, may we receive your loving instruction to us, your people. So we humbly ask you to do your good work. But we pray with confidence, knowing that you hear and respond to our prayer. So we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, each of these seven letters you're going to see as you study through them. And I'm going to go kind of quick at kind of a high level. So you're going to need to read these again and kind of take your time with them. But you're going to notice they're all about the same in their form. It starts with an image of Jesus that uses language from chapter 1. So it's taking words and phrases of this picture of Jesus, and uh, it's applying them bit by bit to each of these churches. So it starts with an image of Jesus different aspects of who Jesus is. Then there's commendations for the churches. Here's things that you're doing that's great. And then there's the, th the problems in the church. Here's things that aren't going so great in your church. Or here's things that could be troublesome as they go forward. And then there's a call to repentance, a solution to the problem, and then blessings that flow from obedience and from faithfulness in these ways. So let's jump right into this first one that was read for us by Bill here. So this is the church in Ephesus. Now, of all the seven churches that are named here in these letters, 
Ephesus was probably the most important church. Easily the biggest city uh, in this region. There was probably 250,000 people, quarter of a million people, which by ancient world standards, a very big city. Um, there's a lot of commerce. There's a lot of religious practice. There's a lot of travel and trade. And uh, there's just a lot going on there. And we know from Scripture, from the New Testament, we know a lot about Ephesus. The Apostle, Sp the, the Apostle Paul spent, uh, spent three years there proclaiming the gospel and raising up this new church. And then Timothy, his companion, was there for a number of years. And we have Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We have Paul's letter to Timothy, two of those letters. And it's all kind of centered around this one congregation, which is probably a big congregation in Ephesus. And this was a good, strong, healthy church. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What a great church. They, they understood the truth, and they stood firm, and they were zealous, and they were steadfast, and that's that's. So much that you want for a church. But here's the problem, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. This is a church that was so firmly held to truth, which is good, but they lost love in the process. Was it their love for Christ or their love for their fellow man? We, well, we know those are very connected to one another. They just got hardened. They had all the zeal, but no love, and the grace was gone. And we know, and Scripture teaches, that we can do a lot of amazing things spiritually, and we can do a lot of good in the world, but when we do it without love, it's empty. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I could be generous. I could be sacrificial. I can have deep faith, but if I don't have, if I lose the love, all those things are empty. He said, you're, 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 you're a church that's so correct. You're so rooted in the truth, but you have so lost love. I think the sign of this today for us, and it's easy because we live in a culture, just as they did in Ephesus, that does not honor Christ and that's not heading in a good direction. And we can wake up and just be frustrated and angry at our world. We can be angry at our culture. You can be angry at the government that doesn't honor Christ. You can be angry about all the, the sin and the brokenness of the world. As followers of Jesus, you know what should really break our hearts is not all the sins of the world, but our sin, where we've fallen short. The fact that we are just sinners saved by the grace of God. And as we look at the world, and we do see how broken it is, and we see how much God's truth could bless this world, how if this world only knew what could truly bring justice and peace and goodness to this world, if they only knew, we look, out with, we look at our world with great sadness. So you're missing out. That Jesus has saved me, and, and Jesus can save you and can heal our land. But we, we move from this place of compassion to a place of just being angry and judgmental and 
become more frequently appalled at the sins of, my, of the world than my own. The solution for them, the solution for us is in verse 5. It says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. He said, you're going to lose your witness here. You need to remember how far God has brought you. And you need to repent, which means turn. You need to turn away from this loveless, yet very true thing. And you need to balance truth and love. And you need to hold them both. As you remember your testimony, remember what God has done for you and what God desires to do for this world. So you can look at your world with great compassion and not lose that first love. Today we're going to sing, we're going to close our service today with a song called My Testimony. Just remembering that God has brought us all from death to life and that God is not done with us. And remember what God has done for us and what God is doing through us. And never forget how far he's brought us. That we are the ones who fall short. That we are the ones who, have, who need God's salvation, who God has brought salvation to so that we can live as lights in our world. That's the message to the church in Ephesus. The second letter, the church in Smyrna. So if, if Ephesus was the, the biggest, most important city, Smyrna was probably the most beautiful city, the most pleasant of all the places. It, had a, it was a very safe city because of the harbor that was around it, which actually they could... Literally, they could put a chain across the harbor because it got real narrow to keep, if enemies were attacking, there was ways they could defend themselves. Uh, there was, it was a very well-laid-out city. If you think about cities that are planned, so in the ancient world and in our world today, most cities just kind of grew up and think of a city like Boston. You would never plan a city like that. You'd never put the roads like spaghetti like that. But it was cow paths and people you know, settling the city, and then it becomes a big city, and it's just a disaster. Now, Smyrna, to drive through, certainly. So, and I don't think there's a car that could see those lanes and keep you straight on the path, whatever. So, technology's not going to help us. But Smyrna was, uh, had become a city like that, but it was completely destroyed at one point. So when they rebuilt the city, they had an opportunity to actually plan ahead and intentionally rebuild the city. Big, broad roads that were straight and made sense, and it was really a well-laid-out, Beautiful city, this gentle breezes off the ocean. Just a wonderful place to live. And the commendation to the church there from Jesus in verse 9 says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So essentially what's happening is they are living out their faith, but there's a large Jewish population there. And this should be the brothers and sisters who were you know, we, we've, we all know God's covenant promises to this world and to, to his people. And, but because they put their faith in Jesus and they were following Jesus, they were accused and slandered. They were accused of all kinds of crazy things, even by their, um, their, their fellow Jews and, and those, who, but those who did not put their faith in Jesus. And so that was, it was difficult for them. And it was creating accusation and, and all the slander and persecution, really. And the problem for this church was not a problem that they brought upon themselves, but a problem that was coming to them in verse 10. It says, you're going to suffer. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 
So 10 days, a figure of speech saying, you're going to be persecuted. It won't last forever, but it's going to happen, at least for a brief time. And the solution for this problem is to be faithful. Be faithful even unto death, in verse 10 it says. And we remember that this is a message from Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 8, to, this, to the church in Smyrna, was Jesus who has the words, um, are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. It's Jesus reminding them, I am Jesus, the one who died and came back to life. I'm the one who suffered and yet was victorious. And now you're being called to follow me, and you're going to suffer, but you're going to be victorious. Jesus never promised his church anywhere at any time that they were just going to be comfortable and prosperous. And interesting that this letter goes to probably the most comfortable of all the churches, the most beautiful of cities and probably an easy place to live, yet the Christians in that city were called to suffer. I think it's easy for anybody who lives comfortably, people like us who live in good neighborhoods and nice homes and cars that have windows that go up and down with a button. Oh, my goodness. We live in many ways a very safe and comfortable life. Now, we face trials and persecutions, but nothing like what they faced. We could be very comfortable. We could be all lulled into just sort of kind of skating through life. We don't need to lean into our faith as hard as maybe we should. But yet, that's God's promise to us is not that we'll be comfortable and, um, and just content, but that we do face trials of life. Not like they face, but we, we face illness, and we do face uh, broken relationships and people who judge us because of our faith or who even would condemn us for that or it just feels sometimes like the world is against us and these are things we should expect in our faith god's people are always called to live out our faith in with cultures around us that aren't gonna just affirm and endorse everything that we believe in they will we will even be hated in this world we will face trouble jesus promised his followers yet we take heart because he has overcome the world He's overcome even life and death. He's the one who was dead and has rose again. And that's the, that's the promise that when we face those things, we can stand firm because we know that he is faithful. That not even, even if we face death, that Jesus is greater even than life and death. And that brings us a lot of comfort when we face those things in our own lives as well. So we're not surprised. We're not shocked. We don't feel like God has abandoned us when we face troubles. We know that God is with us through them. That's the letter to the church in Smyrna. The third letter to the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was the sort of the governmental center of the of this uh, of the ancient world, sort of, of of this region anyway, sort of the Washington D.C. of Asia Minor. And there was a big cultural center. There were lots of arts and huge library there, place of learning, but really a political center. And verse thirteen. Jesus says, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. Where Satan has his throne. That's, a, that's pretty strong language. What this probably refers to is, is that Pergamum was probably one of the first places that, had, that enforced emperor worship. And so whether it was the reigning emperor or the previous emperor, that people could be called on to... Con- to profess, Caesar is Lord. 
that they would worship their emperor as a deity. And followers of Jesus Christ could only say Jesus is Lord. They would never say Caesar is Lord or any other God has any authority except Jesus. And so this created, obviously, a huge problem where the emperor was not to be on the throne, but Jesus on the throne. And you can see how this could lead to problems for Christians, including this one Christian named Antipas in verse 13 says, um, the rest of verse 13 said, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. So this guy was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the Christians didn't scatter. They remained faithful. They remained true. But what was the problem then? Because that's amazing. That's amazing faith, right? Verse 14, here's the problem. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So this group, the Nicolaitans, we don't really know much about them, but they're compared to this Balaam and Balak, who are two Old Testament characters. So it's an allusion to this story in the Old Testament uh, book of Numbers. So Balak was a king who was seeking to curse Israel. And he hired this prophet, this kind of this rent-a-prophet named Balaam. And this clown, he, he hires him, and he sends him up on a hill to curse Israel. But because he was a prophet, he, he tried to curse Israel, and the words that came out were just blessing Israel. And three times, curse Israel, I'm hiring you to curse Israel. And he speaks words of blessing over Israel. And so they just give up on that plan, and they sent a bunch of beautiful Moabite women into the Israelite camp, and they completely compromised, and they were, the Israelites engaged in immorality with these women. And that worked much better. Um, and here, whatever this teaching of the Nicolaitans and the, whatever was going on in this church, it was leading people to compromise in two areas. One is they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, and they were practicing sexual immorality. Which, was, which were things that were very normal in their culture. Anybody could go around and use their body in a certain way and worship, you know, eating these meats that were sacrificed to these idols and having these celebrations that were very uh, much false worship. That was normal there. And the Christians were starting to just kind of do a little of that. So they were very faithful, faithful to stand firm even against persecution and even when others are being martyred, yet they were compromising. They, they had strong obedience, but it was partial obedience. There was a little bit of sin they were allowing in. And partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience, and disobedience is disobedience. When Jesus says that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, there is no room for compromise. That we are, to, we are called to be a people of purity, And in their day, in our day, there are things that can entice us, whether it's a a thing that I indulge in or some kind of sexual behavior that's out of bounds of God's good plan for human sexuality. And, And again, our world will say, no, that's fine, that's normal, that's okay. And God says, no, I have a better plan. I call you to a higher level of obedience. And again, this is almost the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus 
They were, they were spot on. Everything they believed was just right, and their practice was there, but they had no love. And here's a place where their practice was a little bit compromised, but they were very, uh, very loving and, and accommodating. And it's these, the two ends of the spectrum where we, we're too focused on truth and we lose love, or we just are too focused on loving and just kind of getting along with people that we compromise truth. So on one side, there's a lot of grace. On the other side, there's a lot of truth. And this truth can become very harsh, and this grace can become very cheap and disobedient. And we don't, we don't put those things against each other. In Jesus Christ, we can, we can live lives of grace and truth, of love and truth, without compromise. The solution for this church is to repent. You've got to turn from that. Turn away from these, this little bit of compromise that you're letting creep into your practice of faith. You have to deny the, the seductions of our world to be able to experience all the blessings of heaven. And the image of, of Christ here is the one of, with Christ with the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's the truth, and it's, the judge, it's an image of judgment that God is going to judge all evil. And you can, you can live a, a life of faith. The promise to these people, if they can turn from this, verse 17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give the person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That's kind of strange. So the hidden manna, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but manna was God's provision. It was God's food, sustenance for his people. But they're going to get a, if you can obey, you're going to experience this hidden blessing, this hidden provision from God that you won't even understand it until you actually do it. Until you actually live a life of obedience, trusting God's way, not your own, that you're, you're actually going to experience, wow, there is a blessing there from God. That I thought I was missing out on something else, but actually I was missing out on God's blessing. I was missing out on his, this special thing he has for me. And I remember that he's given me a, a white stone. And not exactly sure the symbolism of that. It could mean, in, some, in the ancient world, it could mean kind of a not guilty marker a white stone, but it's got a new name on it. I have a new identity that I'm not guilty and condemned and I'm not just a piece of garbage, but I am loved and forgiven and free. And when I'm that loved by God and when I'm that forgiven, it can lead me on a path of obedience. Not because I'm so scared of God or because he's going to be so disappointed in me. No, because I've received his grace and his grace propels me to a life of faith and obedience. And that is the promise to, to the church in Pergamum. Uh, the church in Thyatira, I've, I've, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to let you read that one on your own. But essentially, it's very similar um, to Pergamum. The, Thyatira was a very uh, important commercial area. Um, and living out, there's some of the same temptations as Pergamum with the idol meat and with the uh, immorality. But it, was, it could be very much tied to the people's work, their day-to-day -day work. And we need to think about, you know, my day-to-day -day work. Are there things I have to do that are in my place of work, that in my industry or my job, that compromise my values, that are either dishonest or unethical or, um, you know, cheating my clients in some way? And remember that even in my place of work, and that could be very costly if I push against that or say no to certain things, that, but oh, there is a blessing in obedience. And that's, again, in Pergamum, Thyatira, very, very similar in that respect. There are all kinds of things that could pull us out of our lane 
as we're seeking to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, if you love me, I, he said, I love you. I lay down my life for you. And if you love me, then don't lose that love that you have for others. He says, if you love me, you've got to love me enough to even, even be willing to suffer for me because I suffered for you and I will carry you through and there's going to be blessing and eternal life on the other side. And if you love me, then love me completely. Don't compromise. Turn from any compromise or sin. And, and love me only and I'm going to bless you in that. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your love for us, your church, your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us on th th that path of obedience, not, to, not th to earn anything from you, not because, um, because you're, you're judging us, but because you love us and you want to bless us as we live lives of obedience to you, Lord. So I, I pray, if you put anything on our hearts today where uh, we have wandered, Lord, that this would just be a great reminder to turn back to you. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient to 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 put us back on your path of light and love and blessing. And we thank you that you are that good to us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.